a little bit more around this place. Let's enter into prayer together. Heavenly Father, there is strength in unity. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. God, I think what we're saying this morning is we need each other. We are all dependent on you. And God, we thank you that we have individual connections to you and that we can have an individual relationship with you. But God, you also want to unify your church and your people so that your church might grow, that your kingdom might spread, that your glory might fill this entire earth. And God, until we're unified, we're never going to be as effective as we need to be. God, there are people out there that would seek to divide us with their words. They would seek to divide us along racial lines. They would seek to divide us along socioeconomic lines. They would seek to divide us into age groups, God. They want us divided because they're working for the enemy. And they don't want to see the church come forth in power. But today, God, we declare that all those plans that the evil one has will come to nothing. The weapons formed against us will not prosper. God, we pray that you would make us truly one, one undivided people under the banner of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that by the end of the service today, we would be a little bit more unified when we leave than we were when we came in, both with each other and also with you through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we pray and we declare this morning, make us one. We can't do it. Man can't do it. Philosophy can't do it. Our plans cannot do it, God, unless your Holy Spirit gives us the power. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. And Father, we pray that you would build us into a wonderful building, a temple for you. Lord, I pray you'd help me to speak today. Speak your words, God. If you don't speak today... There's nothing of any worth going to be said here. So I pray that you would speak to our hearts, you would speak to our minds, and we would be changed to look more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray all these things because he's the one who loved us enough to lay his life down on the cross for us. And Rushwood said together, Amen. You may be seated, church. Thank you so much for being here today to worship. Um, you know, last week, I'm glad you showed back up, because last week I preached a little hard there toward the end, and somebody said, I think last week may have been our record attendance for this service, if, if I'd have to check back, but man, we, we had great attendance, and I said, well, we'll see how many come back next week after I kind of went in at the end, and I even said, y'all, somewhere in the service that in a conversation with somebody who had said something rather ugly that I wanted to punch them in the throat in Jesus' name in that moment. And I'm here this morning not to apologize for that. Um, but my mom sent me a text and said, Brent, who was that person that you had that conversation with? And I sent her back the name because she already knew the name. And then it was dead silence on the other end of the phone. And I sent my mom a message and I said, are you worried because I said that? Because sometimes mom and dad get a little worried about some of the things I say um, because they might not have, they probably wouldn't have said them. And she said, no, I think that deserves a punch in the throat. So anyway, that was, that was uh, me mom approved, if anybody wants to know. 
Look, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. We're finishing up our series today, Walls Come Down. And uh, I, I think God has been working in this series. I've heard good things uh, from several folks about this series. And so we praise God for that. The next series that we're going into is going to be all about the Apostle Paul. And if you think that sounds boring, it's not going to be. There's a lot that we can learn from this strong man of God. And so that's what we're going to look at next. But we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 18 through 22, if you want to turn there with me in your Bible, or if you have your Bible on your phone, that's allowed in this church. You can do that if you need to. Um, But I'd love for you to follow along with me. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. Um, Here at this church, we don't make a mandate on what translation of the Bible you use, as long as you have a good English translation. If you want to know what one of those is, come talk to me. I'll be glad to, to tell you and share with you some things about that. But we're looking at the NASB, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. We've made y'all stand up a lot this morning, but I'm going to do it one more time. I want you this morning to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Can we do that together? Amen, Brent. Y'all work with me this morning, all right? I need your help this morning. Work with me. Ephesians chapter 2, 18 through 22 says, For through Him, that means Jesus, we both... That means the Jews and the Gentiles have our access in one spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You think they just made that song up? No, it actually came from Scripture. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated this morning. In the Bible there are, if we look at the Bible, you understand the Bible is a story. And there are parts that are not stories. There are parts that are are wisdom literature that's there to give us wisdom. And there are parts that give accounts of some of the law that was given in the Old Testament. Not every single part of the Bible is a story, but taken as a whole, it's one big narrative. It's one big story. In fact, theologians use the term meta-narrative, and meta means above. Uh, It's a story that's above everything else, a story that runs all the way through the Scripture. And there are several meta-narratives that run throughout the Bible. Uh, One of the things that runs throughout the Scripture is this idea of God being a father who is looking for a bride for his son. The bride is going to turn out to be the church, and his son, of course, is Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the narratives that runs through the Bible. Another one that runs through the Bible, if you pay careful attention, is this incredible idea that God, who lives in heaven, who dwells in heaven, heaven is the dwelling place of God, God has always been looking for a place to live, a place to dwell on the earth that he created. You say, Brent, I've never noticed that before. Can you tell me more about that? Well, sure. If you look at the very beginning, God created the world. What was created, there was, there was chaos there. God created the world. And some theologians actually say he recreated the world when he said, let there be light. And there were the six days of creation there. 
Um, but God made a garden which was a special place set apart from the rest of the world where he created the first two people named Adam and Eve. And they dwelled in this garden. And they actually had a very intimate relationship with God. It talks about God walking in the cool of the evening. And, and Adam and Eve actually heard him after they had messed up and fell into sin. And so it seems that they were very used to God's presence being there in that garden. Later on, God dwelled in the garden, but then you know everything fell apart because of sin. Later on, God actually uh, dwelled in a special way, in a special presence within the Ark of the Covenant. And if you've read, read those Old Testament stories, the other night, sometimes we watch old movies with our kids. And we were watching, I found at a, at a pawn shop, actually, uh, the Indiana Jones collection. All the Indiana Jones movies. And so, the other night, we watched the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the kids were like, Dad, is that really how it was? No, no, that was, that was Steven Spielberg. That's not really how it was. But I actually started to talk to them. There really was an ark. And it really has disappeared from the scene. And, and we started talking about all that. But... In the Old Testament, in a very special way, God's presence dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant, which is amazing that God condescended himself to let that happen. An Ark created by human hands, he dwelled in that place in a special way. And when the Ark was lost, uh, you know, you would see in the Old Testament that the power would go out of the Jewish people, out of Israel. Very special place where his presence dwelled. And then there was a tabernacle created, which was basically a moving building, a moving place of worship that they could move as the Jewish people moved in their wanderings. They could set it up and it was a place where God's presence would be. And the Old Testament talks about a cloud filling this tabernacle, covering this tabernacle. And so God's presence was there in a special way. And then eventually a man named Solomon, the son of David, built a temple in Jerusalem. And God honored that temple in Jerusalem by filling it with his presence. And so several times you find in the Old Testament, God found a special place to dwell on this earth. He's found a special place to live. But then the most incredible thing in all of history happened. God chose to let his fullness, he chose to let his presence dwell in one man. And that man was Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. God literally dwelled on the earth in the presence of Jesus. For 33, 33 and a half years, somewhere in there, Jesus was God on the earth. His presence, His fullness was found in this one man. So before there was a shift that happened here, before if you notice, these were all man-made objects or buildings where the Lord chose to dwell except for the Garden of Eden. But once Jesus comes on the scene, God's presence does not dwell uniquely so much in buildings anymore or places anymore as God's presence chose to dwell in people. So after Jesus ascended to heaven, after he returned back to the Father, God needed a new place to live. And God chose, here's the incredible news, it's good news. God decided not to dwell in a building or a single person God decided to dwell in a people that he would call the church. God decided he would dwell in each and every one of us that knows him. Man, that's good news. You're walking around. If you know Jesus, you are walking around with God in you. wonder what kind of ride you're giving him during the day. I wonder what kind of trip you're giving him. I hope you're giving him a good one. I hope that you're, you're living in such a way that he's pleased. Unfortunately, however... We, and I do it all the time too, I just did it this morning. 
we when we talk about the church and the special place of God, we usually are referring to a building, aren't we? Julie says, where are you going? I'm going over to the church to do some work. And really what we should probably say is the meeting house or a church building because the word church actually in the in the Greek was ekklesia, which means the called out ones, which cannot be a building. And actually the word that became church, uh, the old English word, Latin phrase that became church actually meant a circle of worshipers, a group of worshipers. And so that can't be a building. But we use it in the vernacular so much and our words mean things, by the way. What we say actually teaches things. The, the jargon we use actually teaches things and actually affects our theology. Because we have called the building the church so much, it's gotten in our mind and it's gotten in our hearts that this is the church. That right now we are in the church. We're actually, we are the church. Actually, we are the dwelling place of God. You say, Brent, that's not all that important. Yes, it is. Yes, it is because it, it falls out to how we treat each other. It falls out to what we consider sacred and what we consider to be holy. And God tells us that He dwells within a people, within the church. I'm going to tell you a story here. Um, most people, if they look at me and my wife, they think I'm the mean one. And I don't blame them. I mean, my wife is, my wife is about five foot seven and I'm about six foot one. My wife is petite and I'm not so petite. Um, my wife is very quiet. She, if you know her older sister, Julie says that she never learned to talk because her sister did all of that for her growing up. Uh, but my wife is really quiet and, and, and petite and pretty and just she seems like she's the nice one of the two. But what people don't realize is my wife carries a verbal switchblade with her everywhere she goes. And there have been times in the past where that has fallen out to be a bad thing for certain people at certain times. And my wife rarely brings the switchblade out. The verbal switchblade is usually kept in her pocket and she very rarely brings it out unless you mess with her children. And when you mess with mama's kids, it's coming out. You're going to get cut. It was a few years ago in, in this church, and I'm going to not even name names to protect the not-so-innocent, but we had just started to transition from organ and piano, traditional worship type music, to having actually a worship team. So we had, we're starting to have a band and we're starting to have more than one person up front leading the music and that sort of thing. And my wife is a really good harmony singer. She's always been very adept at that. She can just pick it up. She doesn't have to practice it. I can't sing harmony at all. I either sing lead or I sing nothing. I think that's a little bit like my personality. But she, even back in high school in chorus, she was in honors ensemble because she could j grab a part and sing and it was just very easy for her. And so she joined the worship team and at that point she was serving in the kids ministry and she was serving on the worship team because we didn't have that many people here and we were just getting everything started. And so a lot of times, and we practiced on Wednesday nights back then. Now our worship team practices on Thursday nights. Hey, you could pray for them if you wanted to. Thursday nights, you could pray, God bless that worship team as they practice. Bless the sound people as they're running the sound for them. God, give them something special for us to worship you the way we should on Sunday morning. But back then, we would practice on Wednesday nights after our Wednesday night services. And so after Wednesday night services were over, the worship team would come in here and practice. And our kids were little back then. This was six years ago. 
And uh, so, so our kids, and, and, and some of them weren't even born at that point. At least one of them wasn't born at that point. But anyway, Julie would be in here worshiping and, and, and doing the worship practice thing. And sometimes if it was warm, I could take them out on the playground and we could play out there and they could be outside. But when it got to be the winter months, it got cold. And so everybody had to stay in here in this room as worship practice was going on. And our kids were little. And they'd already been there for at least an hour, maybe in an hour, hour and a half for our Wednesday night services and that sort of thing. So they were already a little burned out on that. And, and yet here we were even late on Wednesday night having to stay in this room. And so being little kids and being cooped up in a big room like this while mom does worship practice and that sort of thing. And a lot of times I might not even have been here to help her out. Our kids did what any little kids would do. They ran around and chased each other. All of them, it basically looks like a big track to a little kid. And I'm not talking teenagers, and I'm not talking big kids that, that, you know, if they fall and trip, they'll go flying through the wall or anything like that. We're talking about little kids here. And so they would play while, while she would worship. They would play around, run around. Well, there was a lady in this church. It, she just could not stand that. She just could not stand the idea of little kids running around in this place because to her, this was a sacred place. Now, worship wasn't going on. I think during worship, we're supposed to act with propriety. I think we're supposed to act with decency. I think there's a way that we're supposed to behave in worship. By the way, I don't think that's quiet. I don't think we have to be quiet in worship. I hear people all the time say, well, the way I was raised, you stayed quiet in church. Well, this ain't that church. I like you to say something. I like you to praise the Lord. I like you to shout out. I like you to give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Because we don't stay artificially quiet everywhere else. Why should we stay artificially quiet here? Everything should be done with decency and with respect. But at the same time, we ought to praise His name and get a little loud every once in a while. But anyway, this woman had a real problem with little kids playing around in the church. And she wasn't part of the worship team. She had no reason to be in here. It shouldn't have been any of her concern. But she was yet concerned. And so she came in, and the first week she walked in, and man, don't do this to kids in front of their parents. Please don't do this. She decided she was going to get on to our kids in front of Julie. And she said, you kids should not be running around in here. My wife is a woman of grace. She's a woman of love. She's a woman of respect. She's a woman of honor. So she said, I'll give you that one. Didn't say it out loud, but that's what she was thinking in her mind. I'll give you that one. I'll give you the first one. Okay, I heard you. That's all right. The second week, I think my wife was, it may have been that same, next week or the next week or whenever, same woman comes back in here, little kids running around playing while everybody's practicing. This woman comes in and comes to the back and she looks at my kids and says, you kids should not be running in the house of God. I think she put two syllables in God. But anyway, you should not be running in here. Switchblade came out. Mama leaned back put her elbow on one of the pews, leaned back, and I won't call her name, but she said, so-and-so, let me tell you something. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. He didn't say they had to walk to get there. Woman turned around and left. I was like, ooh, she cut them up. That's good stuff. Sometimes people deserve that. It's sad that we put more preeminence, we put more honor on a building than we do the people where God dwells. We will offend our brothers and sisters in Christ time after time after time, but we're going to worry about the building. And I think that breaks God's heart. 
I think that breaks God's heart because the Bible never teaches that this building is the house of God. We say it, we use that phrase, but it's just not true biblically. In the New Testament, you will find no place that calls a building the house of God. At least not after Jesus, after his ascension in that part of the New Testament. Every time it talks about the house of God, it's talking about us. It's talking about the people where God dwells. You say, Brent, I was taught differently than what you just said. Well, it's okay. You can be right now. You can agree with what I just said. God dwells in people. God loves us. God is present in his church, and his church is not a building. His church is a group of people. Somebody told me, I hadn't checked into this, but somebody told me that there was actually a church around this area that got infested with mold. And they had to do a controlled burn the other day because the church had to be shut down and they couldn't fix it, they couldn't repair it. So they actually had to burn the church down to remove the mold. And they said there was a picture in the paper. And I didn't know all this, but that's what I heard. And I heard that people were losing their minds because they burned down the house of God. And I said to the person who said that to me, I said, was there, were there some people in it? Because if there wasn't any people in it, they did not burn down the house of God. I, I, I love the worship structure we have here. I love that we have a big, spacious place to worship God in. And that's great, and that's a blessing, and that's wonderful. And God forbid that anything would ever, a disaster or anything, would ever befall this structure because it's a blessing that God has given us. But if it ever did... If a tornado ever came through here and knocked this place down, or if a fire raged in this place and burned this building to the ground, guess what? The church would still exist. The church would still be here. Rushwood would not cease to exist because the church is us. It's not a building. It's not a facility. And look, I'm for taking care of our stuff. I'm not for, for you know, treating this place terribly and tearing it up or anything like that. But at the same time, the Bible tells us that the earth is going to burn and everything in it one day it's going to be removed and a new heavens and a new earth is going to be revealed that means this building's going to this means this thing will not last forever you know what will last forever people who come in here and get to know the lord jesus christ people who get to be saved and get to be part of his family then we have eternal life we have everlasting life and we get to last forever this building will be gone one day if the Lord tarries and does not come back, there may be a day that a church named Rushwood does not exist. But the people who came to know Jesus through this church will always eternally exist through his power. And so if you didn't get anything else, get this. The building is not God's church. God's church is his spiritual building, is what he's working on. And that's exactly what is said here in this part of Ephesians. So, after we got all that cleared up, I want to talk to you for the rest of the time about what kind of building are we? The building that God is making out of us, what kind of building are we? The first thing you need to know about the kind of building we are is we are one, we are a building built on a firm foundation. We are a building built on a firm foundation. You know, if a foundation is messed up, the whole building is going to be messed up. If the foundation isn't sound and strong and true... All, everything else is going to be unsound and, and unfit. I, I, there's a building that's a great example of that. I was in Italy back when I was in college. I took a trip over there, and there's a building called the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Not pizza, Pisa. 
And the problem with that building was it had a soft ground under the foundation. There was nothing to hold it up, and so it began to lean. And if you go over there now, they actually have these huge cables attached to it to keep it from leaning any more than it already is. It's a great, uh, it's a great tourist attraction, but it's not very good for a building. And you couldn't go up in it anymore because it had leaned so much and all that sort of thing. The problem with that building was the foundation was not firm. But the Apostle Paul tells us that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets, man. And that's, if you don't know who the apostles and prophets are, you're not going to know how strong of a foundation we have as Christians. The prophets were Old Testament people. They were people, men called of God. God had specifically put a calling on their life and said, look, I need you to go to my people and I need you to tell them the truth. I need you to go. Don't tickle their itching ears. Don't say things that make them feel good. You need to go to them. And a lot of times the call was you need to repent. You need to change the path you're on and you, you need to get back onto God's path. And so these prophets, above all, were truth tellers. I worry about the church in America. I worry about the church in America. I know as Christians we're not supposed to worry. Let me rephrase that. I'm deeply concerned about the church in America. Because we have found out that if we will say things that are light and fluffy, and if we will talk about man-centered things all the time, and if we'll basically just be Christian motivational speakers as preachers and pastors, then our churches will grow and they'll fill up and we won't have to worry about anything. The problem with that is, I don't believe that's necessarily what we're called to do. Now, I don't believe every sermon should be hardcore, and I don't believe every time I get up here I should be beating you guys up and, and making you feel depressed and making you feel like you're not a good Christian or anything like that. But at the same time, part of our call is to be truth-tellers. Part of our call is to talk about the tough stuff. Somebody asked me yesterday about a very popular preacher. It's not the one you're thinking of, it's another one. But they said, what do you think about this guy? And I said, he is a wonderful Christian motivational speaker. I would have a hard time calling him a preacher or a pastor in the truest sense of the word because he only hits the nice spots. He only hits the non-controversial spots. And so I'm not saying he's doing a bad work, this particular person, but I said he's not preaching the full counsel of God. And so he's really not living up to this foundation because the foundation of the prophets is those guys were truth-tellers. John the Baptist was a prophet, and he went to King Herod, and he said, Hey, Herod, you know the woman that you're married to, the woman that you're with, that used to be your brother's wife? It's not lawful for you to have her. You're doing wrong, Herod. You are sinning. And so they had to cut his head off. That's the only way to shut him up, because he would go and he continued to tell the truth to the highest level of power in his area. That's the kind of people that the prophets were. The prophets were miracle workers. You study the Old Testament, you find out there's a guy named Elijah that's in there. He's one of the prophets. And Elijah does all sorts of miracles. A man powerfully anointed by God. And then a fella comes along who is, is kind of his protege named Elisha. It's easy to get them fused, confused. Elijah and Elisha. And Elisha says, look, I need a double portion, Elijah, of your power. I need a double portion of what God is doing through you. And if you count it up, the miracles that Elijah did, and if you look and count up the miracles that Elisha did, Elisha did exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah did. And Elijah did a lot of miracles. And of course, we know that was God working through them. But man, there was power in these guys. There was, I mean, stuff like axe heads 
that get lost and, and, and they would cause it to float and come back up. I mean, that's a miracle. It breaks. Sometimes skeptics say, by the way, I don't believe in miracles because they break the laws of nature. Do you understand that's what a miracle is by definition? It's something that breaks the laws of nature. Some people say, well, I don't believe Jesus rose from the grave because people don't rise from the grave. No, except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. God did a miracle. He did something outside the normal laws of nature. God broke in and did. And I believe he still does them, by the way. There are movements out there that say, say that God does not do miracles anymore. I'm sorry, I just can't buy that. If, I, if you know Jesus and I know Jesus, then we're a miracle. Just that's a miracle. But there could be other miracles that God does. Miracles of healing. Miracles of blessing. These prophets were miracle workers. They were also forerunners. They were the ones who, many times in the prophets, they prophesied who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to do. And they actually spoke to people about this Messiah who was to come. They were, they were forerunners of Jesus Christ. They weren't about themselves. They were about pointing to Him and how great He was. And then the apostles... It says we're built, this scripture said that we're built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Well, who were the apostles? They were news bringers, good news bringers. They went to all the world and they said, look, there was this man, he was dead, and then we saw him alive. And he claimed to be God, and if he hadn't been God, we think he would have stayed dead. But since he claimed to be God, and then God raised him from the dead, and we saw him, and he gave us many proofs that he was who he said he was, we think you should believe in him too, and we think you should trust him for your salvation and for your eternity. So the apostles were news bringers. They were ones who went around telling the good news about Jesus. The apostles were world shakers. It was said of the apostles, they who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Church, can we say that the modern church in America is turning anything upside down anymore? No, I, I, I think we just kind of go with the flow. We don't want to make any waves. We don't want to make anybody upset at us. We just want everybody to like us. I, I don't know if we have, I think we have stopped being world shakers, but I think we can be again. I think God is calling us to shake some things up. I believe God is calling us to change some things. I believe he's calling us to be salt and light in this culture. Because if we don't do it, nobody else can. We're the ones called to do it. The apostles were also life givers. They, they were life givers. They helped people find new life and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Why, why am I telling you guys this? That's our foundation. That's what we're built upon. Look at it this way. That's our spiritual DNA. That's our heritage. That's who we're supposed to be like. We're not supposed to sit around and say, man, that was amazing in the Bible what God did back then. Isn't it amazing how he used to work? No. We're supposed to say, God worked through me in that same way. God do miracles through me. God lead people to salvation through me. God use me. Here I am, Lord. Send me. That's what Isaiah said. And I believe that still should be the call of our hearts. That's what God is asking us to do. We're, we're built on that foundation. Second thing you need to know, and I've got to move here, guys, because I don't have a lot of time left. I'm going to move fast. But number two, we are a building that is supported by a rock that won't move. We just sang that song. That's one of my favorite songs, by the way. I love the message of that song. Jesus Christ is a rock that won't move. He's the cornerstone of the church. In ancient architecture, now we do a cornerstone and it's just kind of ceremonial. 
a building's finished, they place a cornerstone in there, and it usually has the date the building was built and that sort of thing on it. It's more ceremonial than anything else. In the Old Testament, in the ancient days, the cornerstone was the stone that held up everything else. It supported the weight of the building. As the building was being built, the cornerstone held it up and gave support to it. The cornerstone had to be set exactly right. If the cornerstone wasn't set right, the whole building would be wrong because everything else in the building was measured off of that cornerstone. In ancient architecture, in ancient building, everything had to be true to the cornerstone. Well, Paul tells us here, Jesus is our cornerstone. He was set first. He sets the limits for God's building. Everything we do should align with Him. Jesus is the standard, in other words. The world is not the standard. What people think is not the standard. What philosophers say is not the standard. What politicians say is not the standard. Jesus is our standard. And if what we do does not align with Him, we are not in alignment with the cornerstone, and the building begins to be crooked. It begins to be wrong. Everything has to be built in alignment with Him. And the greatest thing about Jesus is He supports the whole structure. The whole church. The whole church is built on Him. Aren't you glad, church, that you're not supporting Jesus? Jesus is supporting you. Aren't you glad that we're not holding Him up, embracing Him? He's bracing us. Even in the storms of life, even when the worst things that can happen, happen to us, He's the one that's supporting us. He's the one that's upholding us. Christ alone, cornerstone. Great line, because that's exactly who He is. Number three, we are a building that God is calling us to be built up in unity. The Apostle Paul says we are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It doesn't say you individually are being built into a dwelling of God in the Spirit, although I believe there's a truth there. What it says is we are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That means it does not matter our background. It does not matter our makeup. God wants us all to be one. This morning, let me tell you something from my standpoint as the pastor of this church. I don't care what your skin color is. God loves you. And He wants you to be part of His people. And I'm going to be so glad one day to be in heaven with you. And the Bible tells us that He's calling a people out of every tribe and every tongue and every blood. He's calling us together. So I don't care. I want you, I want you to be part of this church. I don't care what your skin color is because Jesus doesn't care what your skin color is. He calls us all to come together and be one. Church, I don't care how much money you have in your bank account or what kind of car you drive. I don't care what kind of house you live in. That does, it could be the biggest, nicest house around or it can be a shack by some people's standards. It does not matter to me because it does not matter to Jesus. Jesus wants people of all backgrounds, uh, the rich and the poor, to come and be part of his people. I said, you know what I love about this church? And I'm not sure every church can say this. I said, I love that in this church, we might have a homeless person worshiping on the same pew as somebody who's a millionaire. Praise God for that. That's how it should be. That's how it should be. I ain't throwing off on any church, but I see some churches and it's like everybody there is the same. Everybody there is just a little cookie cutter of of one style of living and one way of doing things. And everybody, we were talking the other day, I I know I got to finish, I know I do. But we were talking the other day about churches' identities. 
And we were talking about, you know, this church kind of has this type of people and this church kind of has this type of people. And I said, what about Rushwood? And we couldn't figure it out because we're all different. We're from all, all different age groups. We're from all different backgrounds. We're from some of us different nationalities, some of us different ethnicities. But under the blood of Jesus Christ, we're all one. And I pray God makes us more and more one as the days go along. And I pray this is a church where it does not matter what you've done. It does not matter who you are. You're welcome to come here, hear about the name of Jesus Christ, join in the family, and get on the road to heaven. That's what I pray this church is always about. And other people can do other stuff, but that's what I pray that we are going to be about here. One last thing, and I'm going to finish up. Do you know where the safest place to be is in an earthquake? You would think, and I know somebody said, well, you need to stand in the doorway or whatever, but building-wise, counterintuitively, we would not think this, but statistics show that the safest place to be in an earthquake is in a skyscraper. And you would not have thought that. But in Mexico City, years ago, they had an earthquake, massive earthquake, and unless there was a skyscraper that had some real structural issues or anything like that, most of the skyscrapers survived. There's a reason for that. Buildings that are small tend to be very rigid, tend to be, tend to be not a lot of give with them. The foundation rocks and they rock and then they crumble. Buildings that have structural problems obviously are going to come down in an earthquake. If there's underlying integrity issues, they're going to fall. But skyscrapers have a unique way of getting through an earthquake. When the tremors start, when, when the earthquake hits, they sway just a little bit. Just a little bit. It doesn't sway big time. It doesn't go with every wind of change. Everything that comes by doesn't knock them down. But just a little bit, the skyscraper will sway. And because of that, it diffuses that energy that's attacking the structure. And they actually, the vast majority of skyscrapers stand very well in earthquakes. I wanted to, why he said, Brent, why in the world did you share that? Church has to be like that. As the people of God, if we are so rigid and we are so unbending and we have no grace at all and we're all about rules and we're all about it has to be done this way and you've all seen that and you may have been part of a church like that before, when something bad comes by, that structure is going to fall. Or at least it's going to break apart because it's so rigid, there's no give, there's no bend in it. But if you can imagine, you know, there's some, there's some churches, there's some groups of God's people who, man, they have no rules, they have, they have everything goes, and so if they were in an earthquake, it'd be just like this, and eventually it would fall over because there's nothing strong there to stand on. But if we're wise enough that we have a little bit of give and take, by the way, I'm just going to commend those of you guys who have been with this church since the first day I came here as the pastor. Man, we had to make a lot of changes to get where we are now. We had to do, and you know, people would tell lies about the changes and say, oh, they're doing this, oh, they're doing that. I don't know how many times y'all have been told we're taking the pews out and we're putting seats in, but I, I hear that all the time. If we had enough money in the bank account, we might do that, but we're not doing that right now. But anyway, all sorts of lies been told. They're kicking all the old people out. I don't know if you're over a certain age, I guess you shouldn't be here according to certain people. But anyway, you guys that have been here since day one, as we've made the changes and as we've walked this church back to health and as we have gotten stronger and as we've started to reach the community and we've gone through all sorts of storms and everything else, let me just give you guys a hand clap of appreciation for what you have done staying here and being part of us. You know why you were able to do that? It's because you were able to give and take a little bit. 
It's because you didn't think it was all about you and you didn't think you had the market cornered on truth. And and maybe you were wise enough to acknowledge that maybe your preferences weren't the most important thing. Look, if I had every preference that I have in this church, this church would look totally different because it would all be about Brent. But we have to understand it's really not about us individually. It's about us as a people. And it's about those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ yet. And I just want to commend those of you who have been wise enough to give and take just a little bit so that everything holds together and so that you're able to stand as in unity in this church. God bless you. We would not be here if it wasn't for you. And I just want to praise God for you on that. But in the days going forward in this church, there will be some things that there'll probably be some things that I say that you don't agree with. And there'll probably be some decisions made that you don't agree with. And maybe you think we should have gone right when we went left and, and whatever. In coming days, there's going to be some tremors occasionally. We will hold together and we will stay unified if we're like that skyscraper. That, that There's some wisdom in that. Just gives just enough. Doesn't just do like this and doesn't stand so rigid that it falls. Just enough give that everything stays in unity. And I believe that's what God wants for his church. He wants us to be a people that love and give enough grace that we can stay unified and we can stay as one. Give God a hand clap of praise. I'm going to ask that you stand. I'm going to pray over us. Next week, we'll begin the series on Paul. Please don't miss this one. I already know the first sermon. God's already given it to me. It's going to be good. So y'all need to be here. Okay, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you that though the winds of change hit it sometimes, God, and though we're bombarded by culture, and, and God, it, it looks like sometimes there's no way it should stand because of the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And because we're upheld by the grace of the Holy Spirit, God, your church stands. And it will always stand. Until the day that Jesus returns, there will be faith on this earth because of everything you've done to make your bride, to make your church strong and to stand in everything that goes on. God, I pray that you would unify this church. God, that we would not see divisions. God, I pray we would banish the words us and them from our vocabulary. And it would just be we. That we are your people together. God, I love every person that's under the sound of my voice right now, but I know I don't love them nearly as much as you do. Lord, would you communicate your love to them? Would you show them in this coming week how much that they are a cherished child of God? Please speak to their hearts, God. Help us to look more like Jesus. Help us to lay aside the sin that so easily besets us, God. And help us to run our race, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We praise you for Jesus and all he's done for us. We thank you that your spirit lives in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. And Rushwood said in unity, amen. As you go out this morning, remember our giving boxes, your tithes and your offerings. Help to keep this ministry going. I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. Have a great week.